0: Welcome to The Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. What I didn't understand was he said, well, he might have known the crane was going to collapse, but he didn't know the leads were going to collapse. They were worried that it was going to open the floodgates to, you know, getting around workers Con.
1: Please rise. Court is now in session all right well welcome to the great trials podcast this is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey Yvonne I am in the middle of a uh, just a once in a hundred year rainstorm right now so uh, hopefully that won't be distracting during the podcast
2: yeah we we like an exciting episode we like an unpredictable episode but not that kind not yeah, the technical exactly. issues kind so ho- hopefully you stick with us
1: yes yes hopefully it just doesn't shut down on me and I'm gonna mention even though this is a podcast that you you are on uh, air, fresh from a new haircut, and it looks fantastic. <laughs>
2: Thank you so much. I got my haircut in beautiful Alpharetta today, and then I sat in traffic from Alpharetta for another hour just to make sure um, it really felt like a big chunk of my day was spent on my hair. Yes, um, yes. But it's, it, I mean, I'm, I won't say I'm wasting it because at least we can see each other on video. So
1: absolutely. And as you know, I spend a lot of time on my hair. It takes. A lot of time every
2: morning. Such a diva with the <laughs> yeah, hair.
1: Exactly, exactly. Well, speaking of great hair, uh, let's introduce <laughs> our uh, our guest today. Uh, we've got a fantastic great, uh, guest. It's an Atlanta lawyer, Chuck Clay, who is a partner at Pratt Clay LLC in Atlanta. And you can look him up at prattclay.com. That's P-R-A-T-T-C-L-A-Y.com. Chuck, how are you doing today?
0: Great, man. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yeah, well no this will be a fascinating case and I, and I hate to uh, I mean we'll we'll do a little bit of a spoiler. This was a fantastic case, great uh, result that was then taken away by the uh, court of appeals in in Texas. So uh so there's a sad ending, and um, and we'll talk about that because that is something that that we as trial lawyers do face from time to time. And and Chuck, I really appreciate you talking about what is probably not uh, not a fun subject to revisit at times. I'm sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for
2: sure. <laughs> I'm I'm going through something similar right now, um, where we are hoping a cert petition gets granted, but um, I think it's my yeah. first. What, what were you going to say, Steve? If
1: the Supreme Court is listening, I'm, I'm sure they're big listeners, so. <laughs> yeah.
2: But so that was kind of my first experience as far as getting a jury, you know, convincing 12 people, um, and which is not an easy job, and then to have it all taken away. So this resonates yes. with me. This, this hits me where I live, Chuck. <laughs> so I'm glad you picked this episode.
0: Yeah, welcome. Well,
1: uh, well, Chuck. I'm going to tell everybody a little bit about your background. And uh, Chuck is a fantastic lawyer, uh, founding partner of Pratt Clay. Uh, And um, before, you know, after his years at Furman and then at UGA Law School, uh, Chuck was a a defense lawyer for many, many years at a very good defense firm. And uh, and. We dealt with them on the defense side, and he was uh, easy to deal with, if not, uh, you know, always a, a tough adversary and who knew his facts and, and handled his case as well. Uh, but then, uh, back in 2013, decided to come over to the uh, the uh, right side and um, and started his plaintiffs practice. He uh, was with Chuck Clay and Associates before he joined with his uh, partner uh, Bradley Pratt and uh, started Pratt Clay, and uh, they're based out of Atlanta. Chuck is a a Georgia trend legal elite. He was uh, in Fulton County Daily Daily Report as On the Rise. He's an AV-rated lawyer, a super lawyer, uh, named in best lawyers in America, and and just a frequent lecturer on trial strategy and on... uh, uh, complex litigation has handled a number of cases with just uh tremendous results but uh one of the things that i respect the most uh about Chuck is that he's a little league baseball coach and i know uh, i know how that can be it, it, I mean, there's <laughs> great times i i, I, I yeah. shouldn't say baseball i've talked about it before i i uh, coached my daughter's um soccer team so i i know how it is to to go through that and i've been thrown out of one game only <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, which
2: is kind of impressive, Steve. I'm actually surprised it's not more. <laughs>
1: right, I know exactly, exactly. I did notice in uh, Chuck then you it put in your uh, bio that you have a competitive streak in you, and uh, anybody who came to our uh, law firm softball game knows that I'm not competitive at all.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's very chill.
1: Right. Very exactly. relaxing
2: day for everyone. Just
1: go with the flow. <laughs>
2: um. So yeah, So Chuck, have you been kicked out of any uh any little league games?
0: Not as a coach. No. Close. No. Really. Yeah. Um, okay. I, you know, I, I coach sometimes to encourage one of my children to play a sport that they're trying to sit out on, so that it works for both of us. Usually. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Yeah, that always worked out really well. What I noticed is when my dad coached things like softball, then suddenly I got upgraded from like the outfield to like Mm -hmm. second base or something. So that always worked out well for me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, that's interesting. You would think that that would be an Mm -hmm. upgrade. I mean, I'm not saying second base, you know, is a great position, but outfield is very important, too. So uh,
2: well, like first grade second grade softball yeah, that's there's true. not a that's lot you not, not a
1: in whole field. lot of any outfield.
0: that's true yeah <laughs> uh,
1: i yeah now now i yeah
0: i understand yeah right, um, they here to remove the dog is the dog <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, we we can't hear the yeah. dog if he if, if uh oh, really, good. but if yeah. you uh, if you want to take a quick second w- how, oh, whatever it would make you
0: more comfortable yeah, <laughs> yeah he is, he's okay. yeah, that's a th- I'm I'm, here I'm,
2: I haven't heard anything. Zoom's doing its job, okay. I guess. All
0: right. Yeah, so one reason I, I chose this case is it was an interesting timing. I mediated the last case when I was on the third side uh, on September 30. I October heard 1, the dog there. started the, yeah, <laughs> the, uh, the firm. And on October 3rd, I get a call from my best friend with this case, who had hired the injured guy from AM and m out of college and just said, you know, hey, And I I love this kid, like my son. um, I know you've handled some amputation cases. Who do you know in Houston?
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, So that's what I, you know, that is one, uh, uh, interesting aspect is it. So, uh, so Chuck mainly practices in Georgia and is based out of Atlanta, but this case was down in Houston, Houston. I should have mentioned it's, uh, Brazoria County, Texas is where the case got tried, uh, and, and arose from an incident that happened in Houston, Texas. But, um, but so this was a friend of yours worked for his employer.
0: My best friend. Yeah. He's a senior VP at Skanska. And this was a a guy he hired out of A&M. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, it, it, let me tell everybody a little bit about this case because it's uh, just a tragic case uh, we, where it sounded like you had uh, amazing clients, uh, which, you know, we hear of often in these cases. Uh, and we've said many times that, you know, a great client uh, can make for a great case. And and it sounds like you you definitely had Uh, great client. So um, you represented Tyler Lee and Leanne Lee uh, in a case called uh, Lee versus uh, uh, Burkle and Company Contractors and Maxim Crane Works LP that was tried in May of 2015 in Brazoria County, Texas. And essentially what happened is uh, Tyler was a superintendent for a company called uh, Skanska USA Building, and they were working on a project um, where they were uh, building a, a large building in um, Houston, and uh, they had hired a subcontractor uh, by the name of uh, Burkle and Company Contractors, who was going to essentially drill the pilings um, in, in the foundation. And the way they did that is they would bring in a crane. Um, this was a link belt LS twenty two forty eight H five crawler crane, uh, but it was they bring in a crane and they have this uh, large auger that drills down. I think about a hundred feet or so, and then they f- they fill it with grout and um, and concrete that and pour the the foundation uh, as they go. And um, basically, what happened in this case? This was in September thirtieth of twenty thirteen when this happened. Uh, The interesting thing, and we'll talk about this is Tyler was about a hundred feet away from where, what happened with this crane and behind a safety fence. So, you know, and there was a number of people around the crane itself, uh, that ended up not being injured he ends up being i'm not sure if other people were injured but tyler was certainly the most injured uh out of this case but um so they so uh burkle and company was using a crane that they had uh rented from maxim crane works Uh, Maxim basically comes in and they assemble this crane. They're supposed to do an inspection, supposed to do several tests of the alarm to make sure it's not overloaded, things like that. Uh, Part of the allegation against Maxim was that they didn't do that. And then uh, as the, the after the crane was put together, then Burkle adds a number of other um implements to this including uh uh, some leads the auger uh, a power unit uh they they um they had the auger control which actually blocked the computer of the crane so you couldn't even see the crane computer uh and which would tell which would tell the operator if it was overloading um and so uh, they had all this stuff on there. They're not supposed to do that without calling up the manufacturer link belt, uh, but they did that anyways. Um, so essentially what happens is they've got a 21-year-old guy who uh, sounded like he was actually doing the best that he could under the circumstances. Uh, they drill. Um, they try to drill the foundation, and they had violated one of the rules that Burkle had about making sure that they had enough concrete or grout in order to pour down because you can't poured in sections or else it'll dry harden, and then it's not going to be a solid foundation so you got to pour it at one in in one sitting they didn't have enough grout um and so they ended up having to drill the auger through the uh the uh concrete that had already set in place uh when they did that the auger got stuck uh and they couldn't get it unstuck and then there's another procedure that they're supposed to follow in that instance which is um basically just move on, um, you know, cut the, cut the auger. Uh, it's a, it's a loss. It, it'll it cost the company some money, but it's not going to uh, cost anybody, you know, a, a safety issue. So they're supposed to just cut the auger, get a new auger, drill down again, uh, start over again. They didn't do that. And, the, and basically the uh, operator, um, and I understand there was some dispute about this, but uh, there was at least testimony that the operator, on several occasions, more than once, said, "You know, we just need to cut the auger loose. We, we got to stop doing this." The superintendent um, of Burkle said, "No, keep going." Um, and then, uh, basically, as they uh, it, were trying to get this loose, they saw that the crane was starting to tip or or go up on its. I, I guess go on its toes or whatever you call it, but kind of lean forward. Uh, there's oil was being sprayed everywhere. Uh, I think even the um, even the boom was beginning to flex, which the, uh, I think some people had said they'd never seen before. And essentially the entire um, um, crane collapses. Um, and the leads, which, uh, and, and Chuck, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it, the, you sent us your, you sent us a PowerPoint and and the picture of the leads look like that. That's essentially what guides the auger down into the ground. It keeps it straight, but it's a very tall metal stand, weighs about 80,000 pounds. This falls, uh, and lands on, um, Tyler's leg, his left leg, uh, crushing it and essentially severing it. Um, there was evidence that he, they they couldn't just pick it up because it weighed 80,000 pounds. He's conscious, um with this thing sitting on his leg and um and you know there's people around trying to help they eventually have to get another crane to get that off but it's about 30 minutes before they can do that they take him to the hospital and they he loses his leg uh and it was an above the knee amputation and um uh essentially that is the basics of the case and the case went to trial and um I wrote down the the breakdown of the verdict, but it looked like that Tyler, uh, for his compensatory damages, was awarded about $34,693,006. Uh, Leanne, his wife, was awarded about $750,000 in uh, loss of consortium-type claims. And then a punitive damage or exemplary damage, as they call them in Texas, is, was $8.5 million for a total verdict of $43,943,006. Um, and so uh, just a uh, fantastic work. Um and um and then uh and we'll we'll talk about this later because I want to talk about the case first, but uh and then it went up on appeal, and because of the uh, workers' comp uh, bar, essentially, um the Court of appeals reversed it and found that that uh, the only remedy that uh, in this case that Tyler had was through workers comp and and um and so reverse the verdict and, and threw it out. And so we're going to talk to, to Chuck about that. But uh, Chuck, I, I know that was
0: a little bit long. Did I get the facts basically right? No, you did. Uh, a couple other facts, though, that are worth mentioning. His wife, Leanne, was pregnant in the hospital delivering with their first child was like a week old at the oh, time. So when he's back in the, in the hospital, the ER, she was already she was, you know, it just delivered the child. Um and they, they went on to have another child, but um and it was one of those amputations where they start below the knee and ultimately really couldn't save the knee. So you know, had two amputation procedures. Oh wow. Okay. So
1: you know, and an interesting thing that we'll talk about later is when when we get to the damages is the is the prosthesis and um and the valuing of the of the prosthetic, because that sounded like that was a big part of uh the damages in this case. Um but you know, one thing that I found um Interesting. And I do want to talk about how the case was defended. Um, But did I understand correctly that uh, after this happened, Tyler was in the hospital for about 10 days, but then he was back on the job site within a few days after that?
0: Yeah, He was on the job site before he got a prosthetic. That's amazing. He Um, he was the youngest superintendent in the company's history, uh, and he was so proud of that job, he didn't want to lose it. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, just a, a, a tremendous person and, and, uh, and who went through something horrific, horrific. I can't even imagine, you know, spend 30 minutes with an 80,000 pound, um, you know, metal apparatus on your leg and staying conscious through that and, and suffering through that pain while people are basically talking, trying to make sure that he stays alive.
0: Well, all right. So he's, he's obviously in shock. His leg is two feet underground from the, you know, the, uh, leads falling on it. He asked somebody to grab his phone and call his wife and tell her he's okay. You know, but he's okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. oh my god! Wow. Oh, wow.
2: I mean, just being yeah. trapped like that, I can't. I, can, I can't even imagine.
1: Yeah. Well, um, I mean, so let's talk about this. So they, so my understanding, you, initially, you had the case against, I think, the manufacturer as well as some other uh, defendants. And those cases uh, resolved in one way or another uh, prior to trial?
0: Yeah. Link Belt settled the Friday before we started on Monday. Okay. Um, the others were either venue defendants or paid very little to get out. And okay. then Maxim paid their verdict. So. Okay. I I,
1: I was wondering about that on the appeal. I mean, so I, I, I I know we're jumping ahead here a little bit, but the, um, so the reason why they found that this was barred by workers comp is because Skanska uh, provided the workers comp for everybody on the site, which would include the subcontractors. And so they're saying that was his only remedy, but Maxim wasn't one of the, wasn't a subcontractor. So did the did the appeal affect that part of the verdict?
0: No, because the jury found Maxim 10% responsible and, and not any punitives against Maxim. And so rather than go through the appeal and the prejudgment interest, they they just paid their, their 10%.
1: Yeah, and, and that, that is what I, I forgot to mention, which is that the when the jury uh, came back with their verdict, uh, the, the amount they awarded, but they ninety percent of it they um, gave against Burkle and Company Contractors, and then ten percent against Maxim Crane Works. So um, I, I guess you know where I'd like to start is—is uh, is, it sounds like uh, that that Burkle, it it sounded like there was a pretty big dispute over whether or not anything wrong had been done uh, on that day. Um, and, you know, certainly reading the opening uh, and the closing that the plaintiffs gave, it say, seemed pretty clear that a number of uh, policies had been violated and that you even had some uh, employees or former employees of that uh, defendant who were giving good testimony, but it seemed like at least at first that Burkle was claiming they didn't do anything wrong. Was is that how they were defending it?
0: Yeah. We didn't we were surprised that was the stance, but it was consistent throughout um you know so there, was a, there was a there was a one really bad villain, you know, from for Burkle, the superintendent. Nobody in his crew could stand him and he had sort of ruled with an iron fist and It was his way or he'd fire you. Right.
1: Yvonne, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed.
2: Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me.
1: Yes, yes, a lot more working from the computer, yes, and only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services.
2: That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference, online, it's more important now than ever.
1: I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number, they'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think, my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic, because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of, Documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services.
2: Yeah, and I mean LTS. I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained, and you can always count on them to represent you well. Whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions, or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you. You can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them.
1: Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there. But they do more than just exhibits, they do day in the life videos, they do settlement documentaries, they do demonstratives, and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. So not only does the uh, the operator of the crane basically say we need to stop, but the foreman said we need to just cut the auger and move on. And then the, um, this uh, superintendent for Burkle comes out and you know, basically tells them that they're not going to stop and they're just going to keep going. And there might've even been some cussing and some, uh, arguing, arguing back and forth, uh, about this. Uh, and then at some point it sounds like the foreman basically, I don't know if he left the site or if he just basically, you know, uh, let the superintendent take control of the site and the superintendent said, keep going. And that's when the collapse happens.
0: Yep. Yeah. The, the operator got out of the crane five times, The superintendent told him twice that he would get somebody else in there if he couldn't finish it. The foreman almost got in a fight with him and left. And then he acknowledged that in that two-week period they'd been there, more than half of the crew had been threatened to be fired.
2: Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, So I was wondering, reading the opening, one of the things I was really surprised by was that – Maxim, the lawyer for Maxim that did the opening came out pretty strong against Mm Burkle um, in terms of the things that they were supposed to do that they didn't do. And even I want to talk more about, um, the former Burkle employees that you were, you were able to get to testify, but, you know, Burkle had made out those people sound like disgruntled employees. And and the the Maxim lawyer in the opening went so far as to say, like, what they're calling disgruntled is just people who are telling the truth and they don't like it or whatever. Um, But I was pretty surprised at how strong Maxim came out against another defendant. And I'm wondering whether as you proceeded through discovery and all that stuff, whether they were more aligned, you know, sort of the defendants versus the plaintiff. And that was more of a, a shift at trial or if, if they gave you any help, um, blaming Burkle as during discovery.
0: Maxim was kind of hitched to link belt all through discovery and Burkle. They had to be opposite Burkle. Um, cause Burkle was trying to claim that the crane had something wrong with it, which implicated the, you know, the crane owner, uh, the renter, Maxim. And, and linked up the designer. So that started a while back, and then there was just no love lost, you know, positions taken
2: OK. OK. I was just curious because that's one of my sort of favorite things about a case when you've got multiple defendants and you get closer to closer to trial is like, you know, sometimes it starts out and it just feels very like one side or the other plaintiffs versus defendants in depositions. And then you just wonder when it's going to change. You know that some right. of their good best defenses are to blame one of the other defendants and you just wonder when's it going to happen?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we did too. Uh, you know, I was personally really glad to see Link Bell out. I just think it changed the dynamic. I thought the biggest challenge of this case was was trying it in a way that still left enough of Maxim culpability to have a finding because Burkle was so bad that right. it's hard to you know, not just pound on Burkle every day. They had to sprinkle some Maxim stuff in.
1: So was there a, uh, other than the fact that Maxim was somewhat responsible, was there, was there a reason why you needed them to be part of the verdict? Like, in Georgia, for instance, we have vanishing venue. And so if you lose your venue defendants, you you might have to go retry your case in another venue. It, it, was it anything like that? No, we
0: were, we were worried about declaring bankruptcy and enough coverage and that sort of thing. Okay, I got you. Um, got it.
2: Yeah, because it is one of those situations where, you know, I think when you initially hear about the case, you think, you know, you think about, Unfortunately, we hear a lot of stories about how construction sites, um, I mean, number one, it's a dangerous job, but how unsafely they're frequently being run and and sort of, you know, safety checks that aren't being done and rules that aren't being followed and um, OSHA citations and things like that. But when you read about the facts of this case and specifically how long there was how how big of a period of a time that there was a there was where this could have been stopped where this could have been avoided and that it just kept going with all these people kind of standing around sounds like a lot of them not feeling good about it Mm -hmm. Um, it's just you know and just just feeling like you're just watching this in slow motion kind of because it was a while right that they were like the things were not going well and the crane was sort of tipping and people were like, this is not good. And it just kept going.
0: Yeah, that, that's ignoring the whole grout decision, right? So first it's a series of terrible decisions about going ahead and trying to pour without enough grout to finish. It. Then they get past that and now they're trying to unstick this auger in violation, clear violation of their own policy. And that was about 45 minutes. You know, so they're yanking on it. They're doing these different techniques that, you know, the crane operators know how to do it but you're not supposed to do it where you kind of basically jack it up on the fact and you kind of give it a, a lick, right. you know? Um, so there, you know, I always said, if you get a crane case, uh, there's not one thing that went wrong. There's a bunch right. of things that went wrong, you know, and I think it's probably true with a lot of different equipment. Yeah. Right.
2: Um,
1: um go ahead.
2: Well, I was just going to say, I was talking about the crane issues. That makes me think of the crane operator who, um, was young. He was, he was, 21 years old or, or thereabouts. And so, um, I'm wondering how that, you know, reading the opening and then reading sort of the, um, the complaint and, and, or stories about the case, I wasn't sure how it really played out in trial in terms of that crane operators, like level of experience. In other words, was he, was, did he end up being experienced enough and was trying to do the right thing, but it was basically overridden by, by the his boss, or or did his inexperience play into this, or both? I think it
0: played into it. Yeah, um, yeah. I think he was a very talented operator, but he'd never been on a piece of equipment this big—not even close. And so the bells and whistles, so to speak, you know, kind of like a he just crane operators that grow up in crane families—they they're really skilled at that, but they're not going to go get the book necessarily, you know, and read yeah. the you know two hundred pages and watch the videos. So some of the safety features, I think, I mean, my impression was he didn't know they existed. You know, they didn't exist on the last crane he operated, and nobody trained him on this one.
2: Gotcha. Right. So wanted he,
0: to do well, you know, try and do the right thing. Had to be tough to stand up to that guy, threatening to fire him, and then has to live with us, too.
1: Gotcha. So, so if the crane was giving him warning signs that it was being overloaded, he wouldn't, he wouldn't know what to look for or even know what the signs were. Right. Okay. Um, w- one of the things I saw, and I didn't realize this until I was looking at the closing, but um, ha- the superintendent who was involved here that uh, was such a problem, it sounded like he had been involved in a prior crane collapse and that there had been specific safety you know, regulations or rules put into place because of that collapse, which right. then he violated again. I mean, was is, is that how the evidence turned out?
0: Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> which is frustrating because uh, you know you caused me to think about what what more could we show from from this actor, right? And so the standard was essentially starting to cause harm, you know. So if you're an intentional actor, you don't get the benefit of workers' comp, and that's you have to be a, a high enough up person in the company to bind the company with that ex, ex, you know exemption from workers' comp immunity. And the jury would have found they would have checked a box of anything we put in front of them as to that guy, and so. It was frustrating to go through the you know appellate process to ultimately be told we're going to remand and try it again under the standard that hadn't been articulated at the time we tried it and then for some crazy reason you know we got two looks again from the supreme court denied it, sir and then took it and then reversed it and said under no set of facts we proved what's necessary um so yeah. The more you focus on the Miller, the more you think, you know, God, how close can it get, you know?
2: Yeah. I mean, reading the, so, so if they, if you could show that it was substantially certain that this harm was going to result, then that would allow you to get around the workers comp bar. And, and when you look at the verdict form that the jury had to fill out, it was very detailed. There were a lot of, there were the, you know, the substance of sort of the jury instructions was in there. So it's not the kind of thing where you look at, you've got a one page or a two page verdict form or something that's maybe less detailed where I mean I still I still don't like it because I feel like it's not easy to convince you know 12 people or in this case 11 people of something but um this was a very detailed like they really did their job making very detailed findings um specifically as to these issues
0: right right so you know this was great it was just such a pleasure to me even worked with co council like I had we we recognized this community early on of course and uh we had deck redden as appellate counsel from day one and so all those good you know interrogatory special interrogatories verdict form like it was you know they've masterminded that okay. with the existing state of texas law um so uh, yeah we were pleased to get it yeah the way they fill it out and then you know things happen.
2: So you, I was wondering, that was one of my questions because it it is a fairly involved verdict form. That was something that you all had specially requested kind of knowing that this was an issue that was out there.
1: Yes. Gotcha. So, I I mean, let's go ahead and talk about this workers comp issue because Texas is different from Georgia in that there are exceptions to the uh, workers comp bar. Um, One is, is in gross negligence, but it sounds like gross negligence is only you only have gross negligence is only the standard if it's a death case. Was that the law at the time
0: you tried it? Yes, I think so. Okay, oh, no, you're okay. right, yeah. <laughs> And
1: then, well, and then, <laughs> yeah. and then in, in an injury case, you could you had to show essentially an intentional act or intentional harm. And mm-hmm. I think, uh, and, and as you said, um, substantially certain to uh, cause injury was the was the standard. And then, what it sounded like the Supreme Court said was that uh, no, it's got to be substantially certain to cause injury to that person or to a particular person. Or hmm. a small group, which kind of clicked in my mind. Well, why wouldn't people on the construction site be that small group? Right uh, within that, the
0: radius of the equipment, you know. Right, exactly. Right.
2: Why is, did they did they say what a small group is? Five people or less. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't want to bash people much smarter and in, in, in positions that you know I don't hold. But I, what I didn't understand was he said, "Well, he might have known the crane was going to collapse." But he didn't know the leads were gonna collapse. Well, you know, the problem with that is they're connected, you know, by right. Them. So yeah. if one goes, the other goes. But right. I don't know. I you know, I could never make sense exactly other than they were worried that it was gonna open the floodgates to you know getting around workers comp
2: Right, right. But I mean that it's hard because as you point out. If, if substantially certain is the standard, which is already a very difficult standard to get to a jury on and convince a jury of, when are you gonna have that if you're not gonna have it with the guy who's had a previous crane accident and there are rules in place because of that crane accident and then he disregards them again. I and mean, he, has, he has actual personal experience of this happening.
0: Yeah, We had members of his crew that took a video, they looked out a cell phone, they were hiding under equipment as the hydraulic fluid was spraying cloud all over the place, he's still yelling at uh, the superintendent still yelling at the operator to keep going. That's when it buckled. So, I mean, people were taking cover. So you
2: had, you had video before, before the, it, the, it collapsed. Right. Wow.
1: Because they knew it was going to collapse. Yeah. Right. But they didn't know the direction. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I get that.
2: <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs>
1: Oh, man. Yeah, that that is just amazing. And I have, I, you know, I I guess, you know, and I didn't read the court, the Supreme Court's opinion, but it, it just sounded like at least the way that it came out that there was still a set of facts under which you could have won this case uh, or should have won this case. Because right. It, it, I mean, the people that are around, you know, within the radius of this crane is not a large group. So I don't know why he wouldn't have been covered by that.
2: So this this <laughs> superintendent who couldn't get along with everyone and was threatening to fire everyone. It sounded from the openings like he was going to testify live at trial. And I'm wondering how that went.
0: All right, the jury was so uh, engaged. They were waiting to see him. Like the, you know, every day, like is Miller coming, is Miller coming. And so um he waited toward, you know, right towards the end of our case. He wasn't the last witness, but he was maybe second to last or so and when we announced that the next you know t- we were calling Chris Miller you go ooh you know <laughs> <laughs> now it's going to get good yeah
2: <laughs> um so what was he like was he combative uh, i mean
0: just he was everything you would you would imagine he would be
2: really you
0: know, kind of annoyed to be there slouching you know uh very informal curse, you know, like he knew how to do it. Nobody else did as far as being in the room, you know,
2: wow.
1: That's yep. amazing that he, like uh, his lawyers couldn't have got him to straighten up a little bit. Um, we we we've talked about uh, uh, another case uh, before with the, that we handled and where I got into a a uh, almost a physical <laughs> altercation with a guy at, uh, who worked for the railroad company because he was threatening us and threatening to uh, arrest my experts and stuff like that and told me he didn't care who the judge was or any of that. So we of course go to the judge after that and then the judge ordered his deposition and we took his deposition. And when he came in for his deposition, he couldn't have been just a sweeter, nicer guy, Mm -hmm. Mr. Larry. But he certainly wasn't the same guy who we had seen out at the scene on the day we were trying to do our inspection. But uh, it's amazing that they that if you've got this person who's got, you know, where people don't like him, that he's not going to uh, get himself together before uh, going in front of a jury.
0: Yeah, I know. And it it was hard, though, because the crew. They didn't appreciate what it meant for him to be uh, as callous as he was. You know, they didn't understand they were about to implicate Burkle on punitive damages. They just know he was a jerk. And, you know, he'd been a bully to them all their time there. And this was payback. So a lot of that discovery was done fortuitously for us because I was coming from Atlanta. So I would fly in for the week and we just do 15 depositions. And so that first week of 15, Kurt and I would, you know, look at each other saying, oh, my gosh, you know. It's a punitive case. Uh, we just thought it was a bad liability case. Um, yeah. So that nobody changed it. And, then and, it was hard
1: and to... we yeah. should say we, we didn't mention this. You tried this case with Kurt Arnold from Arnold Itkin in um, in Houston, Texas. Uh, who just uh, uh, another great trial lawyer who did a uh, obviously a fantastic job. But um,
2: um but, uh, go so ahead. So I'm I'm wondering the superintendent. Um, I, you know, worked, Miller worked at Burkle. And one of the things that, um that Burkle's lawyer did in the opening and it, and it made me think of the men and women of Michelin, Steve, you know, oh, yeah, we had a case yeah. against Michelin and it or wasn't the, just the, the, the men and women thing, of Michelin.
1: Or as I've heard, the great men and women of Ford Motor Company. Yeah.
2: Right. <laughs> and so one of the things that, that Burkle's lawyer led with was how it was an employee-owned company. And Chuck, I'm wondering if, if you already had the jury so on board with you as far as what Miller did was so bad that you didn't really need to counter that, or if there was something you all did to sort of, um, you know, counter the fear that the jury's going to think, oh, they're hurting all these employees if they find against Burkle.
0: You know, we were concerned about that after board Iyer and opening. And then as the trial progressed and Maxim started, you know, really hammering Burkle just like we were. And the fact that they never, they never altered from their we did nothing wrong stance. It was so offensive to the jury and um, they liked Tyler and Leanne so much we weren't concerned about it in the closing. In fact, we, before closing, we we debated how much is too much. You know, that's, that's how bad, I and mean, that's not us, that's how bad the facts were for Burkle is, you know, we can't ask for so much money that we're sure to get it reversed mm. because we thought they would give it. Yeah. In fact, right. the 11 to 1, The jury that the jury that did not sign it wanted to give a hundred million dollars and wouldn't have signed 44.
2: Oh, you're kidding. (laughs) Wow. Wow, you usually don't have
1: that problem. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Oh man. So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing.
2: That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of.
1: Yeah, cause it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital marketing is great at it.
2: Exactly, and you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish.
1: Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website, and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com.
2: Tell them tell them we sent you.
1: So their defense was that basically they did nothing wrong, that they handled this right. And, it, and it, when it all collapsed, it all happened very quickly. Nobody had any chance to sort of foresee it. Um, but... In their in their closing, they uh, walked the jury through damages and basically gave uh, an amount that they thought. Mm-hmm. You know so so it was kind of like and 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 um, in in his rebuttal close, uh, Kurt was like, well, you know, so now they, they said they did nothing wrong, and now they're saying, well, you know, if we did do something wrong, you know, don't don't hurt us too much, kind of thing, which right. is, is what it sounded like. But they they essentially suggested, if I read right. Uh, around an $8 million verdict or something, which is what they, um, right. uh, if you add up what they were saying, but yeah, I mean, it, that just seems like a weird, you know, if you, if you're going to come in there and say you did nothing wrong mm-hmm. and then say, well, you know, but if you do decide we did something wrong, then just don't hurt us too bad. I mean, it that just really, uh, doesn't play right. How did y'all, how, how did all that come out at, at
0: trial? Like you would imagine. And it was, <laughs> it kind of filtered through their experts too. I mean, it, it we got to the damages part of the case and liability had gone so poorly that they, at that point, decided, oh, we're going to flip a little bit and try to amend like the night before their life care planner takes the stand. She wanted to do an amended life care plan the night before the economist took the stand. We had an amended report, um, you know, but it, it was so aggressive in the defense that I think it backfired. I and mean, I think if they had been more moderate, it would have been different. Um, but they really had no sympathy the way that they tried it. Yeah.
2: Got it. Got it. they
0: had a, the life care plan had uh, something under $9 per year for toddler, for medicine. (laughs) $9 a year? A year. Oh my
2: God. So like prescriptions?
0: Yeah. So, and the inflation rate they used was for a medical commodity, like a bedpan. Oh, Okay. so, we had this huge inflation rate because we're dealing with, you know, complicated prostheses. And after the, um, you know, after we funded, you know, the government funded so much in R&D in that area, you know, it's been great. Technology's gotten so much better, but the cost also. I mean, otherwise, you couldn't, a company wouldn't go build a $150,000 leg. Right. And now, you know, that's what Tyler got. And so, that was probably one of the most interesting parts of the trial and When their uh, uh, life care planner got on the stand, an economist, and we were using the, we had our prosthesis expert build, like go back and code, what was the cost of the highest state-of-the-art technology for the leg in 1995, 2005, 10, and 15? And what it showed is, and we had to go through the CPT codes, was, I mean, there was just this vast increase, way more than normal medical inflation, and so... Across, we said, you know, well, look, if we'd have been here in 2000 and you'd have had your inflation rate, then Tyler short $10,000 in his leg. Five years right. later, he short $45,000. You'd be telling this jury to give an amount that shorts him. You know what I'm saying? So I mean, yeah. that, that was really a powerful uh, exhibit. Well,
1: Talk about that a little bit um, about the prosthetic, uh, you know, and, and, and that portion of the damages case, because it sounds like he got a, a really good uh, prosthesis and, and, and how you handled that uh, with the jury.
0: Yeah, well, um, I actually found somebody at Georgia Tech who had never testified before, but he had been he'd worked at a uh, manufacturer. He taught in the prosthetics department at Georgia Tech. I mean, he fitted, I mean, he had all these great things, like he'd go to South America and, and fit, you know, children with, with used parts that, you know, they would knock the crap and go build prostheses for people. Um, and so he was a really likable guy, and he was just just into what his, his job was. And Tyler was able, because of his, Skanska's really loved this guy, and they fought for him to work as Khan to get him the state-of-the-art technology. So he's lucky that through comp, he got, you know, the state of the art X3 leg. And once that's in place, you know, it's just not going to last more than like four or five years. Right. So that was a huge, was like 6 billion or more of the life care plan was just the cost of his leg. And then when you increase it, you know, for the, for the inflation rate for those components, that, that was what the life care plan mostly consisted of. It,
1: and, and that prosthetic, like, what does that prosthetic allow, I guess, Tyler to do that, a, you know, I guess more bargain brand, you know,
0: wouldn't? Yeah. And this was cool, too. Um, not only did we talk about, OK, what's the state of the technology now? But I asked Rob, I said, you know, Tyler's right here. I want you to tell him what you think to a reasonable degree of medical certainty the future will hold for him. And I mean, Tyler, Tyler was in there going, you yeah, what is it? They started with these, you know, biofeedback and the wiring to your spinal cord and how the prosthesis, you know, if you're on a slippery surface, it will tell your brain, you know, like, you know, hey, I'm on ice. So and that's how responsive and, and advanced those legs will be. Right. Lighter material, more durable, you know, because the big problem early on for uh, APTs was the all the chafing and wear and whatnot from on again, off again, Right. So the sealer has gotten better. Um, and we had him take his leg off, uh, one day. And and so the jury got to hold it. Yeah.
2: Got it. Yeah. You know, I really liked without understanding, at the time I was reading the transcripts without understanding why it was important to dig into more of the specifics about the prosthetic. Mm -hmm. Um, I liked, I really liked that in the opening in particular, because I feel like we have a tendency, especially in a case, um, where you've got multiple defendants and a lot of disputed liability to spend most of your time on liability, um, Mm -hmm. or the general sort of rules of trial and, and things you want the jury to think about and not think about. And, um, you know, we kind of leave damages for the experts and for the closing, but I really liked, it felt it it just really flowed well to spend a good amount of time on damages and and this on the prosthetic in the opening. I really liked that. Mm
0: -hmm. You know, that was one of the big things I took away from this too. And i coming from the defense side, and I don't know somebody that was on the defense side, as long as I have or left, who doesn't come over and immediately get so wrapped up in liability that you don't think about damages until too late. Um, Now, Kurt and his team, and I think a lot of it, comes from Robert Hershore and a jury consultant that they use a lot um, and they would get they would get in video in the early stages and then we, we would sprinkle in during his uh, there during his recovery so the jury kind of came along with Tyler so that by the time he you know damages they loved him for his ethic, trying to you know how hard he worked to get back to as normal as he could be um, and it wasn't like it just it was a clean break. You know, from liability over to to Tyler. Yeah. 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 Um, and other thing, we did. no, sorry. Go ahead.
2: No, no, you go ahead.
0: Um, we we decided not to have uh, a bunch of friends and family. In fact, we didn't have anybody. Um, the thought was, you know, this, this couple was so strong. First of all, that's why Leanne didn't get much in lost consortium. They didn't think for a second that she wasn't going to stand there for you know be there by uh, Tyler. Trust the, the life, so right. Um, that was that was a different issue. It was really hard for us to decide what to do with Watkins' consortium because of the children too. Um, but um, anyway, we wanted the, the jury to feel like, here's Tyler and Leanne and they're looking to you. you know and they're they're trusting you with their next fifty years. And I think it and I probably would have worked either way, but um, I thought that I thought they were particularly close to Tyler and Leanne kind of feeling that.
2: I'm glad you brought that up because I think we hear a lot of times that people, um, and sometimes I think it just depends on the client or depends on the nature of the injury, but we hear from a lot of guests on the show that they kind of prefer to have other people talk about, um, the injured person or the, or or the couple or whatever. Um, but I do like that idea of, you know, if you're sort of limiting it to them, that maybe it creates more of a connection or a relationship between them and the jury. How were they? How were they on the stand? That each of them.
0: Uh, this is funny. Uh, Tyler was great. He's kind of stoic, you know, kind of a uh, cowboy kind of mentality. Uh, and Leanne is is very strong person as well. But uh I mean, when she broke down and talking about Tyler, um, you know. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Everybody no, was crying. How many jurors yeah. cried? Yeah. I
0: think all of them. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I think all yeah. of them. You know, I know
2: not yeah.
1: lawyer that was fighting it. Yeah. Yeah. So. No. And, and I, I mean, I, you know, especially, you know, when you have a client who, um, you know, is doing everything he can to uh, you know, just get his life back on track and and isn't, you know, taking this sort of, you know, um, you know, a woe is me type of attitude. And, and when they certainly, you know, everybody would understand if he had, but I mean, you know, just the fact that within two weeks after this incident happened and he's back on the site, you know, without a leg and then, um, you know, and is basically just working as hard as he can to uh, keep supporting his family and to uh, get his life back to, um, to normal. I mean, it's just, it's extremely powerful. What was your uh, what was your jury uh, makeup like? And did you get a chance to talk to them after the trial?
0: Yeah, we spoke to them. I mean, they they were swarming the leads. So, yeah, we talked to them and um, uh, kind of a rural, you know, Brazoria County jury, you know, hardworking.
1: I guess I should ask that for Brazoria County. Where Where is that in relation to Houston?
0: About an hour south.
1: OK. And is yeah. that where, it, how was it that the, I, I don't know how venue rules work in Texas. How did it end up in Brazoria County as opposed to uh, Houston?
0: Yeah, um, I guess we were worried about getting removed to federal court there in Houston. And uh, one of the, you know, Dixon something a rectors or somebody that was a defendant for a while was the venue defendant there. We couldn't get a venue in Houston. Um, and and Missouri, we, we heard they had experience there. And our local council, this is always important too. Our local local council is now a judge there. Missouri, Justin Gilbert was just a great guy. And of course he had known our judge for a long time. And you know, that's yeah. always helpful. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. I like that your your local local council.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um so and what was you mentioned um you know, being a little bit um, not sure if it was going to be an issue during Vordire um, in terms of what the jury would maybe think about an employee-owned company. or So I'm wondering what, what you were able to do um, how in in Vordire there and, and what you were concerned about, if anything.
0: Yeah, um, you know, staff is certainly the size, the size and scope of Oracle, I mean, they're not a mom and pop. You know, you yeah. don't get these these contracts if you've got to, you know, a crane at your disposal and they were were all over the country, you know, making a lot of money doing these foundation projects. So um, nobody thought it didn't come off as a company on whatever. And and the other was they were so divisive. I mean, nobody, it wasn't like a unified crew that were all loyal the way, you know, this was they were in and out and they were on a crew. They couldn't wait to get off of this guy's crew. They moved on. They were no longer in the company. There. That was a big challenge was just finding these folks around the country that had experience with this site. And uh, I mean, the investigators were fantastic. They went and found the two guys that were filming and gave affidavits.
2: Yeah, so- I meant to ask you about that, What about... you you were able to find former Burkle employees who um, were able to give you good testimony. And really, as you pointed out, or, or as somebody on your team pointed out at the trial, you know, had no, they were able to do that because they no longer worked for Burkle. And so you were able to track them down in part with help from the investigators.
0: Yes. And they ended up being
2: the guys who who took that video.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
2: Mm -hmm. That's awesome. It's so great when you can find somebody like that who's going to have the inside Mm -hmm. knowledge and isn't going to be afraid to just tell the truth. Right, right.
0: Yeah
1: yeah, and I think I saw uh, I read somewhere that uh, I guess it was those two guys I didn't realize they were videoing but one of them realized that that the crane was going to collapse and so he pulled his buddy under Mm -hmm. some shelter like you know so they they basically hid and so is that when they started videoing?
0: And they started filming filming before and then they jump down under I mean he had I think three different clips okay he played two of them I mean, that, you know when does that happen yeah and, and you know the one guy's out there just bossing literally he's so intimidating the I mean, way he's not a huge guy but he was just so mean you know and, <laughs> he didn't know what he
2: said Right. But it's you you when you read about or hear about construction cases and these accidents it's like especially in atlanta you mm-hmm. just start to see like you start to see these cranes everywhere i mean in part because especially in atlanta they are everywhere but yeah. you start to see all these construction sites and see more of what could what could go wrong it's like you can't get it out of your head once you read about something like this yep. that's right. man <coughs> i mean Just crazy. It's just I can't. I cannot get over. And and part of that I think is just working on other workplace injuries or, or cases like that personally. And you know what happens is there's a liability case there, but it doesn't. Mm -hmm. I just can't get over the what leads to this injury and how. I don't know if I if I would have as good as stoic. I know I wouldn't have as stoic Mm -hmm. of an attitude as your client did if and going back on the job site and everything, if I mm-hmm. felt like there was this road that led to my injury where there are so many chances for it to be stopped.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's, it was unique. It was, I um, mean, all he really cared about for, it was, you know, some financial security for his family, if he's going to be able to work to support his daughters, um, and if he's going to lose his job. And that was, he was so proud of that position and being the youngest in the company to ever make it to superintendent. They actually were building the building for Skanska. It was going to be there, another oh, okay. sort of business headquarters there. So he was overseeing the project, um, and normally it would flow the other way. You know, the normally the Skanska would not have a, a workers' comp community issue, but it was the way that the insurance program worked, they did what they call a CSIP, so Contractor-Controlled Insurance Program. So that was news to me too. I, I didn't immediately see there would be a comp issue. Um,
2: but yeah. it
0: came out quickly. In fact, we had a meeting early on in the case um, where defense counsel asked me to come down and he wanted to interview my clients. He said, look, you know, this is, we can't defend this case. Tells them right. in the meeting, you know, I'm going to go back and tell them you pay a lot of money. And then the next thing we heard was four zero because we've got a
2: Wow. Oh, man. Oh. Yeah, what a good push. We were just, you
0: know. Yeah
2: emotions oh my gosh well
1: um, to talk a little bit i mean i know that i know this is uh, difficult to talk about and i guess you know the question is is knowing what you know now i mean i think i know the answer to this uh, any regrets about uh pursuing this case um and uh, and and i guess you know talk about how you and i'm not sure anybody can but prepare yourself for the fact that after working your ass off and going and getting a great verdict it gets uh you know taken away from you
0: yeah no um <laughs> uh, you know I, yeah, I was new to i mean i've done some claims cases before this but this was a whole different world uh where every week for 18 months i was working on their case you know right. um and got to be close to tyler in the end but not so close that i was you know want to get too emotionally invested mm-hmm. in it so one when we got past summary judgment and we had Beck Redden, and I saw how talented they were and saw how talented my co-counselors were. You know, it was that kind of, uh, uh, you know, there's a value. You see on TV, like some superstar that scored 44, but they, you know, they, they relished the game where the team, won the championship. Um, I think that there was, there was so much to be said for when you're really on a team that everybody's doing their best and working that common goal. That adversity brings you closer at times. Um, and I think that Tyler and Leanne felt that support. And, and then the other part is there wasn't anything that we could have done different, you know, okay. looking back on it, there wasn't a, oh my gosh, have we just done this. Um, you know, we, we had the, the exact phrasing of the law as we understood it at that time. The law changed and then they said, we can't meet it. So that is really unfortunate and, and there's nothing I can do to control it. Mm-hmm. And, um, for, you know, the outstanding co-counsel that I had. And so it's really a shame, but, you know, Tyler understands. Tyler still, um, you know, went back and did his thing. And then, thank goodness, you know, we hedged our bets a little bit. You right. Know, we got some settlement from Link Belt. Maxim paid his part. And then there's, you know, some other things that were offered that I'm not sure we talk about or not. Um, but there was some hedging of a complete loss, which I just – you know, really, really, really am grateful. Um, and there's a lot of value to doing going through this experience, you know? Yeah. I right. them, um, that when they read the verdict form like that, you know, it's a wave of emotion that I don't know, it's hard to describe. Yeah.
2: You yeah. Know, and we well, and for the clients too, you know, I mean, I think they don't. You know, sometimes when you have a case where there's there's a settlement opportunity, especially early, and it's a good settlement opportunity, I feel like that can be a a mixed bag for everybody, because sometimes what the clients really want are answers and, you know, Mm -hmm. to hold somebody accountable, accountable in front of a jury, not you know, the money. And so at least from the standpoint of, so you were able to do both for them. I mean, you know, you got the money, but you were also able to have those tough questions answered in front of a jury and know that the jury was on their side.
0: Right. Well, they made it easy, you know? I mean, look, it could have been hard, right? They could have been offering the kind of money that at least look back on it. We look back yeah. on it and say, oh my gosh, it was a mistake.
2: Right. We didn't have,
0: you know, think we didn't have that consternation because it just wasn't there.
2: Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> Right. So, yeah. Well, it's yeah. such a great result. It's just, it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. tough when you, when you have this high standard to meet and you've got this verdict form that it is very stressful. Mm-hmm. It just in terms of like, you know, it's, t- it's what you needed mm-hmm. to show. Right. But it, but it's tough. It's a tough one to go through and a tough one to, to, you know, get Twelve non-lawyers to agree on, or in this case, eleven and one who agreed way, way even more. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um. So it's just rough.
1: Well, and it's it's especially uh, I mean, uh, you know, uh, hard. I guess you know because you spend so much time, and you know, as Yvonne said, we're we're going through the same situation right now where you spend so much time reading the law, understanding exactly what the law requires. Mm-hmm. And then you build your case around that so you can make sure that mm-hmm. you're meeting the requirements of the law. And then you go up on appeal and, and then the law changes. And that's, uh, cool. you know, it, it's just, uh, it's especially hard to take. I'll just say that. Yeah.
0: You know, they done an interesting part about this one. So it went up the court of appeals the first time and they reversed and said, you know, as a matter of law, zero, because you haven't shown that the leads were known to about to hit him. So then we hired the dean of Texas, who was former dean of, you know, and so we had another brief. And in the interest of justice, I've never seen this before. In the interest of justice, the court of appeals reversed and said, reversed and remanded their own decision. Then against the Supreme Court, they did not serve. So we we're feeling really good about, I mean, you know, to be honest, that we'd settle the case, right? Yeah. Um, let it yeah. go back to the jury. And then, They decided another case, and so
2: there was another. It's just it was a slow death. Yeah, that is torture. Oh my god!
1: Well, yeah, yeah. Well, Chuck, uh, we really appreciate you coming on. Let me remind everybody we've been talking about the uh, Lee versus Burkle Company uh, contractors and Maxim Crane uh, Works uh, that resulted in a uh, 43,900,000. Uh, dollar verdict, um, which then unfortunately was reversed by the Supreme Court. Um, Chuck, is there anything that um, that uh, you'd like to make sure our listeners understand about this case that we haven't had a chance to talk about?
0: Um, You know, one thing that I was not aware of, and you guys might know with your questions, I didn't realize there was so much uh, investors out there looking for opportunities to invest in a judgment. Right. And and you know, that's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you
1: absolutely and your your clients will get hit up. I mean, you know, and and um yeah, you know, and and especially if there's uh, you know, you've all everybody's heard I think or seen the the advertisements for the companies that want to go out and buy the structured settlements and stuff like that. And there's a reason why you put stuff like that in place is to protect your client and, and then right. Uh, you know somebody wants to take advantage of that, but um, yep. yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, you, you definitely hear that. So <laughs> that's,
2: a, that's a good point. I don't think we have talked about that on the show yet. <laughs> we hit. We have not. We have
1: not. Yeah. Um, well, well, Chuck, we, we really appreciate it. Let me just remind everybody: we've been talking to Chuck Clay, who's a, uh, a founding partner at Pratt Clay LLC in Atlanta, Georgia. You can look up Chuck at prattclay.com. It's P-R-A-T-T-C-L-A-Y. Chuck, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to The Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with, or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's gonna be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a, a glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website.
2: Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at great trials podcast.com note if you have something mean to say we don't have email <laughs> right exactly
1: <laughs> we only need a uh, positive commentary yeah,
2: we're fragile yeah. um you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts apple podcast stitcher spotify google play or wherever again if you have something mean to say um